Welcome back to Propel, Allen and Overy's podcast addressing all things related to self-driving cars. The Autonomous Vehicle Readiness Index, or AVRI, an annual study that uses 28 different measures to assess this year 30 countries and jurisdictions to determine, well, as the name of the study suggests, the countries most prepared for self-driving technologies. The four pillars of the study are organized into four areas, policy and legislation, technology and innovation, infrastructure and consumer acceptance. For the first time, Singapore leads the AVRI, overtaking the Netherlands for the top-ranked position and leading on both the consumer acceptance and policy and legislation pillars. These last two pillars will be the focus of our conversation with our three guests. The first, Sion Chen, an associate professor of law with Singapore Management University. He heads the Autonomous Vehicles Project for the university's Center for AI and Data Governance. Simon Constantine is the deputy research director for the Singapore Academy of Law's Law Reform Committee, working with the committee across its full range of law reform projects and reports. Samson Lim is an associate and Allen and Gledhill's LLP. He is a committee member on the Singapore Academy of Law Law Reform Committee, Robotics and Artificial Intelligence Subcommittee. Thank you all for joining us. Dion, let's start with you. You are an associate professor at Singapore Management University and have recently been involved with an initiative by the Singapore Academy of Law to review the Singaporean laws to see if they can be revised to better accommodate self-driving cars. Before we get to all of that work, could you please set the stage for our listeners about the state of self-driving cars in Singapore, including the result of this recent AVRI study? Sure. So as you mentioned uh, in the report, Singapore is now first in terms of AV readiness. In the last three to four years, Singapore has been slowly phasing in the testing of autonomous vehicles. So it started with certain designated closed circuits. Uh, we've now moved on to open roads. So that's on one level. On another level, we've also moved up in terms of the degree of automation. So initially, we were looking at SAE level three cars that were being tested. Definitely, we have reached level four. I'm not too sure if we have fully implemented level five testing, but certainly in the works. And even before that, Singapore has always been interested in driverless technology. Uh, we've seen driverless trains and buses being used. We've also been looking at drones for the transportation of goods. So I think in terms of AV readiness, in terms of the facilitation of testing, in terms of the technology, I'm not surprised that Singapore is, according to the study, at pole position. In terms of the legislation and policies, so far it's been quite a light touch approach taken by the Singapore government in that we do have certain subsidiary legislation in place to facilitate testing to ensure that if accidents happen, that there will be accountability. But we are not yet at a stage where we can introduce AVs onto the roads uh, for widespread use. So we are still very much in the testing phase. Well, let's talk about the legal analysis or the legal assessment that I know you've been working on, really focusing on the Singaporean laws. Walk us through that a little bit. Tell us about that work and your focus and some of that light touch that you're talking about and what you found out of your analysis. So under the um, SAL subcommittee, well, we were tasked to look at civil liability. Right? In other words, what happens when road traffic accidents involving AVs occur? 
essentially who's responsible, who's going to pay. When we looked around, we noticed that most jurisdictions did not yet have any concrete legal framework. So that's our starting point. We look at whether or not there are any jurisdictions that have tried to, perhaps from a law reform standpoint, look into creating a legal framework. And at the same time, we also considered if it will be viable to use existing legal frameworks that we know, such as negligence, product liability, even strict liability, or whether or not you know, we needed to reinvent the wheel, so to speak. So that was really the, the object and the scope of the study that we took. And we looked at jurisdictions such as the EU, uh, the UK, Australia, among others. And of course, along the way, we also discovered certain complications, such as do we need to regulate cars of different levels of autonomy differently? So for instance, should a level three car be regulated differently from a level five car? Now, most people think the answer is yes, but uh, it may not be so straightforward because what happens if level three cars are phased out quite soon, right? Then you would have taken a lot of effort to create a set of laws that, that would not last for very long. Another complication might be whether we wanted to treat individual private consumers uh, differently from, say, operators of fleets, so your Ubers and Lyfts and whatnot. And lastly, whether there should be a difference between private entities and public entities. And by that, I mean that if, for instance, a government-owned operator of public transport would have far more resources to deal with issues of compensation and investigation as compared to a private owner of a vehicle. So we didn't look at all of these sub-issues in our report. We focused mainly on a more general level. What happens when there are accidents involving AVs on a private consumer level and on the assumption that the cars are more or less fully automated? Well, there's certainly a lot to consider on the issues of liability. Who should bear the burden on those concerns? Where did you come out? What guidance have you provided through your work as to what the rules of the road, so to speak, uh, should be like in those circumstances and liability? I think the first thing we probably landed on would be that the existing legal frameworks would not work very well, at least from a common law standpoint. If you look at, for instance, negligence, or if you look at uh, product liability, you would still need the plaintiff to prove a breach, right, or to prove a defect. And that in itself would entail considerable costs and time. Because at the end of the day, AVs are driven by huge amounts of data, and that data needs to be interpreted by somebody, right? So if an accident happens, your first part of call is to look at what was the decision made by the car. And as we have seen in examples in the US, uh, in China, when investigations of accidents involving AVs take place, and investigations by the government, they take a long time. When you have a situation like this, the consumer is placed at a disadvantage. If an accident happened, he may not be able to prove the claim so easily. And as a result, compensation may not follow. So that was the first thing that we landed on. The second thing is, okay, assuming that that is true, is there any way in which we can facilitate compensation in some way that doesn't unduly compromise due process? So for instance, in New Zealand, outside the context of driverless vehicles, when a accident happens, whether it's on the road or even at the workplace, compensation is paid out through a centralized fund, which is essentially funded by levies on petrol and whatnot. And so there will always be money paid out whenever an accident happens. But if you take such an approach, what that means is that you need buy-in from the community, the people, 
that they are basically paying a tax to fund compensation for victims that may not involve them in any way. And secondly, you might foreclose the possibility of, say, whoever is paying out compensation from seeking subsequent redress. So for example, in the UK under the AEVA, the mere fact that an accident has happened and that compensation is paid out more or less by default if there's insurance doesn't prevent, let's say, the manufacturer or the insurance company uh, from seeking compensation from the manufacturer if there's a defect. So the burden is placed uh, no longer on a consumer, but some other party which has a better position to seek compensation. So that's the second thing, whether or not we can move away from moving liability to facilitating compensation. I don't think any jurisdiction has come up with, in my view at least, a set of intricate laws that really look at this in much pointed strokes. So far, it seems to be operating between these two extremes. We either favor the consumer and compensation, or we favor innovation, if you will, by basically allowing existing frameworks to be repurposed. So that's fascinating on the liability issues. Some of the other big issues that governments are facing around the world on self-driving cars also involves things like data protection and cybersecurity. Um, and you've touched a little bit on it, but also, frankly, insurance. Did your work in your study also assess issues in those two areas as well, data protection, cybersecurity, and insurance? Yes. So maybe I'll start with insurance since I've already touched on it. To the extent that we can make insurance mandatory, as we are already doing so for non-driverless cars in Singapore, if you want to drive a vehicle in Singapore, you need to have auto insurance. Uh, to the extent that, as I mentioned, proving negligence or product liability may be unduly difficult for the consumer, insurance may well be the key. Of course, for us to take the next step and say that, well, that is maybe the sweet spot, we would need uh, inputs from stakeholders in the insurance industry. At this point in time, I think we are not at a stage yet that we have decided on the side of insurance. So uh, those steps haven't been taken, but I imagine that that might well be the direction that we're headed to. Now, in terms of data protection, the lifeblood of AVs is data. And data will come in the form of maps, images, calculations, essentially the decision-making process of the AVs. So on the one hand, we have manufacturers who want to protect the data from competitors and the data in a sense, may be exposed if there is litigation or if there is any sort of dispute resolution, because all of these things will need to be presented as evidence in court. And on the other hand, we have governments who want the data to be protected from potential criminals. So we're talking about things like hacking or misuse of cars, driverless cars, that is. And that definitely then links to cybersecurity, right? because this data is not kept in a box where no one can access driverless cars are going to need to tap into wireless networks to communicate with other cars, communicate with a command center if you're talking about fleets. So there's always that vulnerability that people could intercept that data. What we have seen so far is that across the world, many jurisdictions have focused mainly on the question of, of civil liability at this point. And that is unsurprising because I think if you want to inspire consumer confidence, the first thing they want to know is what happens if there's an accident. So issues such as data protection, I suppose one could say, is a bigger concern for the manufacturers. And likewise for cybersecurity, it's probably a bigger concern for the government. But on the private individual consumer level, they're definitely interested more in the question of compensation. Although of course, these are all intertwined issues. One would have to make a decision by looking at all these factors holistically. And I think looking at these issues in a compartmentalized way may not be the best idea. 
But in terms of how each jurisdiction is looking at this issue, everyone starts first with civil liability, and then they move to perhaps criminal liability and relatedly uh, cybersecurity and data protection. And it sounds like also the assessment in Singapore is to take these issues while being thoughtful and doing assessment like your committee has done, still taking it in steps as the industry involves instead of suggesting sweeping regulatory change. Is that effectively right? Yeah, hence the light touch descriptions. This was confirmed in Parliament when they passed certain amendments to our existing road traffic laws to accommodate the testing of AVs. They pretty much want to give the industry a chance to thrive. But having said that, uh, we do have precedents in terms of what we call PMDs, personal mobility devices, and also drones, where the government had also said that uh, they would take a light touch. But in the end, I think individual consumers were not very responsible with their behavior. And so the regulations came in hard and fast. But I think for AVs, it would be slightly different because the nature of AVs is that you will need to use it for proper work, right? Drones is, the use of drones is ultimately as far as individual consumers are concerned, either for delivery or for a personal hobby. Likewise, for PMDs, it's to get people from place to place, but in a quick way, in a convenient way. But I think when it comes to cars, it's kind of ingrained into the mindsets of people that we've got to be careful on the roads, right? We can't take chances. And so I'm fairly confident that a light-touch approach would still be maintained for the foreseeable future as far as AVs are concerned. Well, it's interesting. Do you find that in Singapore the light touch on the regulations of AVs is having an impact on developing consumer confidence in the technology. And one would say, well, you know, we don't have the rules in place yet. I don't know if I'm liable or not. I don't know if it's safe or not. Therefore, I'm going to wait on this technology. Are you seeing any of that in Singapore? In a sense, yes. So Singapore, for those who are not familiar, is essentially an island city state. We are barely over 600 square kilometers in land area. It's about 20 miles long and 15 miles wide, 50 miles tall rather. So it's a very small space and we have about 6 million people living on that island. The point is that if any accident involving an AV should occur, everyone will know about it. There's no way you can hide. And so far, um, there have been very minor mishaps involving AVs a couple of years ago. Not, nothing too major and the government has always been very frank. They've always discussed it with Parliament. And because the technology is being phased out progressively. So we started with closed circuits, designated testing zones. We started with level three vehicles, I believe, and we've been progressively moving up. So I think there's a quiet confidence about whether or not this technology would work. It's interesting how you characterize, you know, once there's an incident, everyone will know approach, because uh, frankly, we're seeing that worldwide, even though there are numerous accidents every day, and unfortunately, numerous deaths that happen every day, certainly worldwide, but certainly in the United States as well. The incidents involving an autonomous vehicle gets national attention in a way that a standard issue with a standard car uh, would not gain that attention. And so seeing how that impacts the industry, how the industry responds and how government responds, it sounds like some of the things that Singapore is actively assessing and tackling. And so uh, understandably why you might be in the pole position, as you so to speak. In a strange way, it actually helps that Singapore is densely populated. Because if you look at the high profile accidents involving AVs in other countries, most of them do not take place in densely populated cities. Basically, I think it's more likely that one would get into an accident in the wide open where there are very few cars, as compared to in a city where you would have to stop your car every 20 seconds or so because of a traffic light. So in that sense, it's actually not that strange. Singapore has not seen any, at least to my knowledge, 
major accident involving AVs. I think there is a certain virtue and benefit in having an AV move around a densely populated city because, uh, first of all, the car can't move terribly fast unless it's on the highway. And secondly, because there are so many cars around it, it's probably a way to program the car in such a way that it is more likely to slow down or stop as opposed to, oh, that's something I can't identify and let me just drive through it. Right. I think, <laughs> I think that's, that's more likely when you're driving on a highway with very few cars or where it's at night and suddenly there's a person pushing a bicycle and the car can't decide whether or not there's a person or a bicycle. That's interesting. So the, the fact that there's a lot of cars being tested in a densely populated area actually has the benefit of kind of socializing the technology to your citizens. And the fact, of course, that there may be few accidents um, is a positive socialization where in other countries, the cars are still kind of a novelty. And so individual accidents gets magnified in a way that creates some challenges. All interesting when trying to figure out how to create the rules of the road to encourage industry as well as to give the public confidence that if something goes wrong, the right rules are in place for those situations. Well, thank you for all of that. Simon, if we could turn to you and walk through the work that you've been doing on self-driving cars for our listeners, it'd be great for them to get up to speed on that. Got a few questions to follow up. Thanks, Paul. The project that uh, Siwan mentioned, the self-driving cars project, that is part of a sort of larger suite of work that Law Reform Committee is looking at, which is considering in a few different topic areas how robotics and artificial intelligence will of impact our laws, how we might need to adjust Singapore's laws to accommodate it. So far, we've published three reports, including the self-driving cars one, and there's a further report that we hope to publish shortly. There's actually a fair bit of overlap between a number of these and, and this uh, self-driving car sphere. So we looked at some of the data issues that you touched on earlier, but also some of the more fundamental ethical questions, which I think applies quite pointedly in the autonomous vehicle sphere when you're looking at things like what level of risk tolerance should we program into our car? Should there be circumstances in which a car can mount a pavement, can touch a pedestrian if it's nudging them is the description that's used. And the interesting thing you get there is that actually then you're considering uh, cultural specificities as well, which again, we've just touched on a bit. These questions of the classic philosophical um, dilemma of the uh, the trolley problem. So do you sacrifice one person's life to save the lives of five people? These sorts of questions get um, answered differently depending on what sort of uh, cultural background you come from. And so thinking about how that's going to work in terms of the ethics, as it were, in, in inverted commas, that cars are going to be programmed with and whether that will effectively be imported from wherever these cars are originally developed into different cultures, uh, whether that's going to, uh, to create challenges or whether you'll see some kind of consensus reached through, uh, through multilateral discussions. So I think there's a lot of overlap there. Another aspect which um, our forthcoming report uh, will be looking at is about criminal liability. And again, that looks at a number of the issues that CON just mentioned about how when you're looking at these fault-based frameworks, so something like criminal negligence, which you might have in a driving context if um, causing death by dangerous driving, for example. Again, that's quite a straightforward uh, assessment when it's just the human and, and you're judging their actions. When you're having to judge the actions of a piece of software and the millions 
millions and millions of decisions that that's making in the lead up to an accident, that becomes much more complex. So then you're starting to think about, well, in criminal law, the questions are arguably even more uh, sort of nuanced and pointed uh, when you're looking at the sort of liability that should be imposed there. And so in that report, we'll be thinking about actually when is it appropriate to impose criminal liability, whether it be on corporations or individual developers, as opposed to, say, some kind of uh, regulatory solution where effectively you're working on a more collaborative basis, as it were, sort of trying to generate this feedback loop of constant improvement and refinement of technologies. And you're actually using incidents that occur as part of that learning process, while obviously still having the legal frameworks that ensure that where serious injury does occur, somebody is held appropriately accountable. As CON mentioned, there's a lot of overlap between these issues, but we've tried in our reports to pick out a few specific areas and, and really um, dive down into those. And well done for doing so. The issues that you're raising here, and I'll start with a few questions on the ethical issues and how you've handled those. They've, of course, been the topic of conversation in a variety of including podcasts of talking about how do you address the trolley problem? Do you hard code that? Uh, resolution or is it more the car needs to learn and will do as it is taught to resolve those issues, kind of similar to how a person does it. What would a person do? Don't know. Uh, We'd have to assess it if and when it happens and then assess whether that decision was right or wrong. Let's start with those ethical questions. Having gone through that process and study, do you see a, a way forward in Singapore on kind of a policy decision or even regulations in place to kind of address these ethical questions and maybe addressing the trolley problem? Or is it more, as Siwan was mentioning, we're going to take this in steps and see how it evolves? I think certainly the latter. I mean, from an ethical perspective, generally, I think you see here what you've seen in a number of countries, which is effectively creating a broad set of ethical principles. There are eight of them, I believe, in the Singaporean version. There are six, seven elsewhere. Broadly, they're around the same things, around uh, accountability, around effectively trying to be human-centric, as it were. Singapore has developed a framework like that that is aimed at uh, the developers um, of and deployers of, of AI technologies generally and trying to create some kind of risk framework for them to apply in their business when they're designing these technologies. So effectively, you're trying to deal with those risks in the design phase. What our project looked at was trying then to think about, well, how does that work in a regulatory context? If you are trying to create laws, can you inject, as it were, those same ethical principles into the way you design your laws and therefore have this mutually beneficial symbiosis, as it were, between what's happening on the development side and what's happening on the legal side. I think in terms of where we are now, it is that sort of incremental approach, seeing how these technologies arise. With legislation, I suspect you may end up in a position where some technologies are quite specifically regulated. You may have licensing regimes and the like, and that may impose various requirements and go into some of the more specific details on things like, in broad terms, ethical questions. In other areas, you will have much broader regulation around such technologies as a whole, or you might just adapt the laws that you have at the moment to ensure that they cover uh, autonomous technologies in the same way that they do human-only interactions. Interesting. 
There's lots to discuss there, but for the benefit of time, I'm also very interested in your study on the criminal liability side and that forthcoming report. From your description of it, when the listener hears criminal liability, I'm sure the first thing that comes to mind is the fact that there's a bad actor who takes control of the car or uh, inserts some kind of malware into the car to cause you know, damage or harm. It sounds from your description, though, that's not really the focus of your work. It's much more of the actions of the ordinary person, meaning the developers of the car or uh, the designers of the car, the standard operating features of an AV vehicle, that then something goes wrong, Um, maybe with intent even there, but maybe not. And they may be subject to, as you mentioned, criminal negligence and those standards, even for things that might be in other contexts considered bugs in the system. Am I capturing that right or did I miss something? No, I think that's right. You can divide it really between what you might call intentional conduct and non-intentional, so typically in existing terms, negligent conduct. On the intentional side, I think fundamentally you're not in a largely dissimilar place than you are at the moment. If I use a piece of autonomous technology to commit my crime, or as you say, if I tamper with a car's software or tamper with some of the input data it's receiving, for example, feed it malicious data, then fundamentally, I think you have a situation which the criminal law is fairly familiar with. The more difficult questions are when that sort of blame aspect, as it were, is rather more nuanced, either because you're thinking about someone having been negligent or because the degree of responsibility is distributed across the sort of development chain, as it were, from deployers through to where these systems were trained versus the original coding and the like. And you're trying to work out which aspects of that might have resulted in the accident that occurred at the end. So fundamentally, those questions are really similar to what you're looking at with civil liability. The difference being, I suppose, a moral and social one that whether for the degree of harm that ultimately occurs or for other reasons, There is a view that criminal liability, that harshest of sanctions, may be more appropriate, notwithstanding that there wasn't necessarily intention on anyone's part. And you see that at the moment with things like workplace safety and the like, where you you have laws that will impose obligations on employers, on the owners of work sites and things like that to ensure the safety of the people working in those facilities. The fact that they have no intention of harming their staff doesn't necessarily mean that they can't be held criminally liable if as a result of their actions or their lack of action, uh, somebody is very seriously harmed. So I think what we're looking at is where there is that sort of accountability demand, how you fill that gap when there is a human, uh, when there isn't as easy a human driver or a human user to, uh, to tag Very thorough and thoughtful uh, in your approach there. And certainly, uh, given the amount of study you've done on not only these criminal liabilities, also, of course, the the ethical questions. And then with Suyan mentioning the liability issues, data protection, cybersecurity, insurance, you're covering a lot of waterfront in your analyses of the future of regulations in Singapore on AV technologies. You know, with all of this effort going on, kind of figure all this out and effectively to adopt self-driving technologies in Singapore. I've asked a little bit to see you on, but I'll ask this question to you too. Is there a public confidence challenge, kind of all the study, but, you know, doing things in bites 
there is, how is that being handled? And if there's not, why not? So, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to speak for all Singaporeans, but I think generally as a nation, the people here have historically been fairly ready to adopt new technologies, as Siwan mentioned. Autonomous vehicles, other forms of uh, automated technology aren't necessarily entirely new to the people here. And I think there's a certain pride in being seen internationally as at the vanguard of, of such things. But I mean, if there is a major incident at some point, would that shake public confidence? It's possible. I suspect it would depend on the nature of the issue. I think a lot of the question is what sort of, and this is somewhat unknowable, I think, at the moment still, is what sort of level of safety we expect from autonomous vehicles. As you mentioned, you know, road traffic accidents sadly are incredibly common and don't necessarily make headline news, yet you get one involving an autonomous vehicle, and that is a major headline. So that suggests that somehow we expect a higher level of safety from autonomous vehicles. I think that might be entirely justified given that the aim is that they are doing things better um, than, than humans. But the question is, what will people's tolerance be ultimately? And I think that's unknowable. Of course, if you ask my wife, she'd probably say she'd be much happier uh, for a robot to be driving her around than me and would be, would be entirely right to do so. But, uh, you know, I think ultimately a lot of it is in how quickly these things are rolled out. I think you'll see uh, a natural experiment, as it were, of people's response to, to those questions is. All, all fair. And I'll, I'll make sure to consult your wife if I ever decide to get in the car with you to talk it over. But uh, thank you for all of that. Uh, Samson, turning to you. I understand you've had a unique role on this law committee looking at Singaporean laws uh, relating to self-driving cars. Can you set out for us, my listeners, that role and what you noticed? My role was really to review the regulatory and legislative trends around the world in respect of self-driving cars to get a sense of where other countries are at in order to guide our recommendations for Singapore. The biggest trend we noticed when looking across all this legislation is that regulators and legislators are somewhat tentative in the sense that they have not attempted to impose any specialist legislation to tackle civil liability for accidents involving self-driving cars. By and large, the trend is that pre-existing legal frameworks, such as common law tort frameworks, are being relied upon to regulate such liability. And we've also investigated a little bit on why this is the case. And we've seen some indications that the reason for this tentativeness is the fact that some countries may not want to risk stifling the industry. There is a fear that if a jurisdiction is a first mover, so to speak, legislatively, this would actually discourage relevant companies from investing in the self-driving car market in that jurisdiction. So that's really, I think, the big trend that we noticed. That goal that you're seeing, and, and maybe even Singapore is experiencing, is that it doesn't want to move too quickly because it doesn't want to stifle the industry for its country's purposes, as well as to maybe have the industry move some of its investment elsewhere. It may suggest to the listener that the governments around the world are keeping their hands off, maybe to the sacrifice of safety. And that, of course, could have its own impacts on public confidence in the technology. So very much a balance that needs appropriate counterweights. What's your thought on whether safety is being sacrificed over the goal of not stifling the industry? 
when we look at it at a broad level, of course, there's certainly that concern. But when we drill down to it and we look at what's actually happening in the space, I would say that at this juncture, the two goals are not necessarily in conflict at this moment. And let me explain why. The reality is that the technology at this stage, while developing very quickly, has not yet reached a point where we can say there are fully automated vehicles that are ready to be put on the road for commercial use right now. So really, the absence of a full-fledged and specific regulatory framework has little to no impact on real-world safety at this present time. Seen in that light, I would say actually it's a fairly prudent move for regulators and legislators to give themselves, in a sense, maximum leeway before committing to a particular legislative framework. I think I should also emphasize that regulators are not simply waiting for the technology to come to fruition before they act. There's actually significant legislative activity in terms of what we would call regulatory sandboxes. These are sets of rules that facilitate the testing of self-driving cars, and Suryan has talked about it already. And sometimes these rules work by carving out exemptions to the existing road traffic regime, hence the term sandbox. These are quite popular, not just in Singapore, but across the world. For example, in our report, we highlight that more than 30 states in the U.S., have enacted statewide legislation to facilitate the testing of self-driving cars. This really goes back to the broader theme about how governments and regulators across the world are recognizing not just the necessity of legislation in terms of regulating the, the social implications, but also recognizing the powerful economic impact of legislation. Hence, in terms of enabling testing, there's great activity, legislative activity there and regulatory activity. But when it comes to whenever there's a risk of uh, unnecessarily stifling the industry, the regulators and legislators are holding back. And that clarity is important. And I appreciate you sharing that point there. Now, you did mention the U.S., my home country. New Zealand's been mentioned. Singapore, of course. You have gone through a process of studying the regulations around the world involving self-driving cars. With that vantage in mind, have you seen that there are particular countries that are kind of leading the pack or the countries of the world effectively moving at nearly the same pace with some, you know, some up front, but essentially very similarly? How do you see the groupings of the countries in this development of the industry? I would say that there are certain highlights in various countries, but I think it would be difficult to point out any uh, world leader. I can give you one example or a couple. If we look at the UK, for example, in 2018, they passed this Autonomous Vehicles Act, which actually creates an entirely new framework to regulate autonomous vehicles. The interesting thing is that this act works uh, on the basis that certain vehicles will be listed or categorized as autonomous vehicles and the regulations and the legislation in that act would then apply to these vehicles. To our knowledge, it's been two years since the Act has been passed and no vehicles have yet been listed. There's another example. I think in Japan, there was quite a big push towards uh, finalizing the legislation and the regulatory framework for self-driving vehicles on the roads. And the reason for this was there was a policy goal to have self-driving vehicles be on the roads in time for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Unfortunately, as we know, uh, events did not pan out as expected. And so... Just like the Tokyo Olympics, I believe the plan has been shelved. And so the legislative impetus in that regard have also been shelved. So I would say, really, we can't really find what we would call a world leader or maybe a front runner, especially legislatively. But there are 
several countries who are experimenting. Appreciate that insight. Well, gentlemen, I very much appreciate the time you've spent with me today and the insights you provided uh, to me and, and the listeners of Propel. A parting question to each of you, which is really with your advantage in Singapore, is your estimate of when autonomous vehicles, level four or five, will be the majority of cars on the roads in Singapore. Sion, I left you first. How about we start with you? What's your estimate and how close we are in years to when level four and five cars will be the majority of cars in Singapore? My answer is that I wouldn't be surprised if it comes out as quickly as within five years, but I also wouldn't be surprised if it takes, say, 10 years. There are quite a number of moving parts. Five years, if we bite the bullet and say, well, let's just give it a try, because I think the technology is more or less there. It's just that there might be some reservations as to whether it would really work in the real world, but you wouldn't know till you try it out in the real world. All right, so Suyan is saying less than five, but also greater than five. Simon, where are you parked on this? Well, I think this year has told us not to predict anything um, if, if we take any lessons from it. I mean, I'd slightly uh, dodge the question and say, I think that when you're looking at public transport, I think that's where you might see it first. So buses, for example, I think you'll be seeing level four, level five buses uh, relatively quickly. Then cars, there are so many variables. I'd probably be at the longer end of CON's timescales on that. I think five years, I'd be surprised if you get the public adoption, the affordability, all those things aligned quite that quickly. But I think when you're looking 10 years hence, particularly if there's a sort of interplay between this and, and some of the, uh, the pushes to move towards greener forms of technology, I think that's probably uh, the more realistic timescale. Fair enough. Samson, your views? I think if we're talking about the majority of vehicles on the road, I would also incline towards the longer end of it, say somewhere between 10 years, uh, 10 to 15 years. And the reason for this is because the technology may be there, but there are also other factors such as the data protection, the cybersecurity aspect, but more importantly, there's the cultural and social aspect. There is a significant proportion of people around the world that feel there is an intrinsic joy in driving the cars themselves. So if we're talking about public transport, like Simon mentioned, I can see it happening fairly recently, maybe like five years, five, five to 10 years. But when we're talking about majority adoption or even a situation where all the cars on the road are driven autonomously, that would probably take a bit more time. Well, I appreciate all those views. Definitely leave you and the listeners with the question of, do you like to drive or do you like to commute? Very different question when it comes to driving your cars. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Very much appreciate you joining us on Propel. Thank you.